Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 13th, 2023. Um, the beginning of the year, we're getting towards the end of the year. The beginning of the year, I did an interesting show with the historian Frank Costigliola uh, on the life of the great uh, American 20th century diplomat, George Kennan. Uh, his book, uh, Kennan, A Life Between Two Worlds, has been critically acclaimed. I've always been particularly intrigued by George Kennan, of course, the architect of containment, an American diplomat and historian, and certainly one of the most influential American diplomats of the 20th century. He was born, as it happens, on February the 16th, 1904. What amazes me, and I have to admit I knew nothing about this, is that there is another George Kennan, also born on February 16th, although this one was born on February 16th, 1845, who happened to be a second, a cousin twice removed from George F. Kennan, uh, a 19th century explorer and writer who had an enormous impact on 19th century relations uh, between the United States and Russia, as his uh, twice removed cousin uh, had on 20th century uh, American Soviet relations. I knew nothing about this until uh, I began to read a book called Into Siberia. George Kennan's epic journey through the brutal frozen heart of Russia by my guest Gregory Wallance, and he is joining us from uh, Siberia, a very distinguished historian, author of many different books. Gregory, how familiar were you with this other George Kennan? I, I, I'm assuming, like many of us, you were an, a, initially intrigued because of uh, the other George Kennan, the 20th century George Kennan. Well, first of all, Andrew, thank you so much for having me on your show. And the answer is, I wasn't aware of my George Cannon, the older George Cannon, until I stumbled across him in the archives, uh, National Archives, uh, and came across, I was looking for a topic, honestly, I'll be honest about this, I was looking for a topic, I just finished a book, I was looking for a topic for another book, I started looking at well, what collections of Americans' papers, important Americans' papers, do the National Archives have? And I started going through them, and then I came across George Kennan. And I thought for a moment it was the George Kennan you described at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, the other George Kennan. One is George Kennan. <laughs> and, and then I discover, wait a minute, there's another George Kennan. And the first thing I noticed, and this is what attracted my attention, was he was an explorer and had an impact on American-US relations. And that drew me in. And I became absolutely enthralled. And then I discovered that not only were they cousins, distant cousins, if you will, but your George Cannon, the containment George Cannon, was given the name George in honor or as an acknowledgment to the fame and reputation of his older Cannon. And they met, and we'll get into the, you know, the older George Kennan story, of course, but the younger George Kennan said many years later, 
that in his life, meaning in his career as a diplomat, he tried to do what he thought his older cousin would have wanted him to do had he been, for example, a son of my George Kennedy. And so there's this kind of, I call it the changing of the guard that took place very symbolically because one was 50 years or 60 years older than the other. But my George Kennan was the great Russian expert, American Russian expert of the 19th century. And his younger cousin, whose full name was George Frost Kennan, was the great expert on the Soviet Union, the successor to the Imperial Russia of the 20th century. And both had an enormous, enormous impact on the relations between the United States and Russia slash the Soviet Union. Gregory, I appreciate your honesty uh, in, in, in suggesting that you were looking for a, a subject of a book when you came across the older, your, as you say, your George Kennan. Your previous book was called, and it was critically acclaimed, The Woman Who Fought an Empire. Might be, uh, it was about Sarah Aronson and her so-called Nile uh, spy ring. Might this book have been subtitled The Man Who Fought an Empire? <laughs> that's, that's really good, Andrew. Yeah, I think it could be. It could have been. Absolutely, because that's what he did. He took on the Imperial Russia in a very direct way. So tell us the story. It's an astonishing story. It's one thing to be an explorer these days, but in the 19th century, this man was a true explorer, wasn't he? He was. And he wrote a, a biography, started writing an autobiography that was never published, which I came across in his papers, which he began with saying that I was born with a desire to explore. And he, at the age of 20, joined an expedition that was exploring a route for a telegraph line through Siberia. And he, was, he, he spent three years living in, sleeping in yurts next to reindeer carcasses and pile of dead fish and camping at night outside in 50 degree, minus 50 degree temperatures. And that experience sealed a bond a bond between him and Russia. After that, he wrote a book called Tent Life in, in, in Siberia about his experience in that telegraph exploration, which was widely acclaimed uh, and made him uh, a nationally known writer. He, he continued his explorations. He went to the Caucasus, to Dagestan, which today is part of Russia. It was then newly conquered by Imperial Russia, principally uh, Muslim, and he may have been the first American to enter the interior of Dagestan. And we can talk about all these adventures, but it's just to sort of set the stage. And then he, he started a domestic life. He married, they were unable to have children. He became a reporter for the Associated Press, first covering the Supreme Court, even though he had no legal background and he did it brilliantly. And he became the manager of the Washington office of the Associated Press and covered the assassination of John Garfield, president of the United States. 
And then he was approached by a magazine. It was kind of the equivalent of the New Yorker today, the Century Illustrated Monthly Magazine that uh, became the publisher, for example, of the first excerpts from Huckleberry Finn. And between the publisher and the editors, they worked out, a, they commissioned George Kennan to investigate the Siberian exile system, which had sent more in just a century, sent a million Russians, convicted criminals, regime opponents into Siberia, this vast prison without a roof. Now, why then? What, what was significant about the exile system that would be of interest to a leading American magazine? Well, in 1881, the czar of Imperial Russia, Alexander II, was assassinated by revolutionaries, terrorists, if you will. And that triggered a really authoritarian measures, the like of which Russia had, had perhaps never seen in imperial history, although imperial history was pretty brutal. And it resulted in all kinds of arrests, imprisonments, and exiles to Siberia uh, without trial. And until then, the relationship between Russia and the United States had been one of friendship. During the Civil War, Russia was the only country in Europe to openly support the North, for which the North, the prevailing side, was grateful. The expedition that went that that Kennan went on that I described earlier, which was just after the Civil War to Siberia, was a joint enterprise, the Russian-American Telegraph Expedition, and and was a high point. This kind of cooperation, a major, major commercial. Yeah, it, it's it's really an astonishing story, Gregory. We, um, we are talking with Gregory Wallance, the author of a fascinating new book on the other George Kennan, the 19th century George Kennan into Siberia, George Kennan's epic journey through the brutal frozen heart of, of Russia. You, you said earlier, Gregory, that US had, the United States had a close relationship with Russia. They're physically close. Of course, the Russians had originally attempted to colonize the West Coast. I'm still a big, I live in San Francisco and I know all about the Russian River, Russian River Brewery, right. Right. Sebastopol and so on and so forth. Um, how much of the close relationship between the US and, and, and Russia was based on that geographical connection and of course, the history of Alaska as well? Well, they were much closer then because Alaska was Russian Alaska and extended all the way down to the Canadian border. I, I'm not certain that it drew directly from geographic proximity. I think the major factor was the support for the North by Imperial Russia during the Civil War. And I think the focus of Europeans, of, of Americans, was not so much on Siberian Alaska then, Russian Alaska. It was on this colorful European Russia with its romantic novels and its dashing young men and these tragic women. And there was a sense of Russia being a distant friend of the United States, something who, while it had an entirely different governance, system of governance, it still was very attractive to Americans. And so it's at that high point in Russian-American relations that Kennan is commissioned by the magazine 
to go to Siberia and investigate the exile system. Now, what you have to appreciate is that Kennan, in his book, Tent Life in Siberia, and in his lectures, had done a lot to foster that friendship, mm. to paint a positive impression of Russia, to interest Americans in Imperial Russia. And in fact, he became, before he went to Siberia, he became a defender of Imperial Russia's exile system. He argued in very prominent speeches when the exile system became controversial after the assassination of Alexander II, that while it was not without flaws, that it was in some respects more humane a penal system than penal systems in Europe or in the United States. And one of his arguments was based on the fact that unlike in our or European penal systems, wives and children were allowed to accompany husbands into exile. It, in other words, he argued, it kept families together. So he intended to conduct a thorough objective investigation, and he did, but that was somewhat of the mindset I, I wonder, uh, Gregory, whether there are also there are lots of similarities between these two countries on so many levels. Although, of course, America was founded as a republic and the essence of certainly 19th century Russia was its imperial quality. But the Russians uh, emancipated the peasants in the, in the latter part of the 19th century. And, of course, America ended slavery. Are there any similarities in that sense as well to the, the late 19th century histories of these two countries? Well, Andrew, you put your finger on obviously an important one. And let's give Imperial Russia Alexander II some credit because he freed some 20 million serfs peacefully. We, we freed some 4 million enslaved peoples, not so peacefully. But I think a, another parallel, which is really directly relevant to Kennan and some of the people he met, was that when he went, or just a few years before he went to Siberia, Russia had what a cultural historian, Orlando Figgs, has called its own 60s moment, because there was a generational gap. And young Russian men and women, particularly students, who had seen the reforms of Alexander II had become impatient for more reforms. And in the summer of 1974, they started a movement called Going to the People, where they put on uh, peasant dress and went into the villages and the remote parts of Russia to persuade uh, peasants that if they gave up the czar, they would be able to enter into some kind of socialist utopia. And the audacity of their effort was exceeded only by their ignorance of the peasantry who responded, how can we live without a czar? turned many of them into the authorities, and hundreds of them were prosecuted and radicalized even more than they were. They really didn't present. You know, it's funny, uh, Gregory, we had um, the British political philosopher John Gray on the show recently, and he seems to suggest that the, the Russian liberal aristocracy of the late 19th century has much in common with the early 21st liberal aristocracy in america so there are lots of similarities we are speaking with uh gregory wallace a very distinguished historian and writer author of a fascinating new book about the other george kennan into siberia 
George Kennan's epic journey through the brutal frozen heart of Russia. I want to remind everyone that this high-quality content on Keynote is brought to us, or at least help brought to us, by my friends at Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, who are supporting my show. We're going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Gregory to talk more about Kennan's epic adventure and how it impacted Russian-American relations in the last part of the 19th century. So don't go away. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. They have lots of uh, interesting coverage, I think, of 19th century Europe and of 19th century Russia. So uh, lots of similarities with our discussion today with Gregory Wallace, the author of Inter Siberia, about the other George Kennan. So Gregory, as we suggested in, or as you suggested in the first part of the show, um, the first Kennan was as sympathetic to the romantic qualities of Russia. He even idealized the penal system because prisoners were allowed to take their families with them. So he shows up in Russia to write this piece. But of course, what he finds is something entirely different. How quickly did he begin to understand how appallingly brutal the Russian penal system actually was? I'd say it took about six to eight weeks. And he realized that he had begun his investigation or undertaken this investigation on a badly mistaken premise. He thought he was investigating a penal system, which was intended to you know, punish, try, punish, uh, hopefully achieve some uh, rehabilitation of some prisoners, a traditional penal system. And that's not what he found. What he found was a brutal, sometimes barbaric instrument of Russia's exploitation of the vast resources of Siberia and the means of punishing and suppressing dissent. And the turning point took place in a town roughly halfway, a little less than halfway through his journey. Tomsk, right? Tomsk, Tomsk where he, and he inspected a lot of prisons. But this particular prison had family barracks, barracks for those men, for, for those, those wives and children of the exiled convicts or the exiled political dissidents. And he came into one of them with the warden of the prison who was accompanying him. And he saw a horrible scene. These women, these mothers and children were crammed into an impossibly tiny space. From underneath the floorboards rose the smell of excrement and urine. Dirty laundry hung from the rafters. And women, young women with babies, young mothers with babies, nursing babies, during his inspection of this barracks, came up to the warden and begged to be allowed to stay in the bathhouse for the prison because they could not keep their children 
warm at night. It was cold. Why couldn't they keep them warm? Because this barracks had no walls. It just had cotton sheets, which didn't keep the cold out. And to each of these women, the, the warden said, no, no, it's better for you here. And later, Kennan asked the warden why he rejected their requests, because it was so cold in the barracks. And he said, I tried, I tried letting them stay in the bathhouse, but it was too hot, damp, and close, and every night babies died. One wonders how naive he must have been. I mean, there must have been a lot of other material suggesting the barbarity of, of the Russian criminal, if you want to, I don't know if, if, if this is a euphemism, the criminal justice system. What had he been reading? What did he expect? Why was he such a romantic? I think, and, and I want to get to you know his acknowledgement that he'd been naive. He didn't just pretend that he hadn't been. I I think he it was his bonding with Russia. It was like a romantic love at a young age from those years he spent in uh, in exploring in Siberia for that telegraph line, and then later he took a six thousand mile sleigh ride from. Siberia to St. Petersburg. Yeah, that's more than a that's more than a ride, Gregory. I think that is a that's a schlep and a half. For he, loved, he, he, he loved it. That's the great thing about Kennan. Although I'm sure he had drivers and servants. He had drivers. There was a pretty well developed transportation system where you could just commandeer a sleigh in a town, and the driver and the horses would take you as far as their energy. So it's the equivalent and of the, and they the train. Well, he, he took the six thousand mile, made the six thousand mile. Yeah, it's like uh, 20, 20th century travelers or explorers fall in love with Russia through the Trans Siberian Express. Exactly, he, he was absolutely dazzled by Siberia, and that bonding, that dazzling, clouded his vision until he got to that prison in Tomsk. And, and that, he's certainly not the, the first or the last. Western liberal to be bamboozled by Russia. Samuel Bentham came and invented his idea of the Panopticon working for Catherine the Great. Of course, many leftists in the 20th century, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, for example, came, fell in love with Russia. So we can't really single him out. But of course, once scorned, he was very angry, wasn't he? And then he, he took his message back to America and the the empire he loved became the empire he fought. I think, Andrew, that's pretty well put. But it was a searing moment for him because after that visit that I just described, he couldn't sleep. He closed his eyes and all he saw were dead babies. And he realized that these women and children who had not committed any crimes were in effect being made to suffer horribly for no reason other than devotion to their husbands and fathers had propelled them to go with them into Siberia. And then were, they were left in these horrible conditions. And he, the next day, he wrote a letter to his publisher in New York, the Century Magazine publisher, saying, it isn't easy to admit that I have written and lectured on a subject, meaning the exile system, without understanding it but it's better to acknowledge that rather than continue to pretend that something isn't what it really is and after that 
he had a he had a let's just say he developed an attitude about Russia. He he continued his his investigation, and it, it really debilitated him. Eight thousand miles of travel in carriages without springs or seats, uh, all kinds of terrible weather, uh, contracting diseases on these visits to the prisons, being infested with with vermin. But the worst thing, as he wrote later, the worst thing, the harder than the physical beating he took, was this relentless exposure to human suffering. And when he finally staggered out of Siberia and reunited with his wife in London, she barely recognized him. He was so thin, his face was so sunken, he could barely walk. And while he was recuperating, he wrote a friend that this, would, this trip was even harder and harder to bear than the three years he spent exploring in Siberia for a telegraph line. And he said, if, and this reflected that depth change of attitude that you just described, he said, if by the time I finish my writings, for the Century Magazine and lecture, I have not touched the hearts of the American people, meaning open their eyes to what I saw, then I will think that the American people have no hearts to be touched or sympathies to be roused. And when he returned to the United States, over the next nine years, this is what he did. Did this have any impact though? Of course, Russia and America fought briefly on the same side in the First World War. I don't know what the American position was on the um, uh, the, the, the Russian-Japanese War of 1905. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was involved in that. But did he really change public opinion single-handedly on, on, on the Russian Empire? There were other influences which we can talk about in a moment, but I think more than anyone, he did just that. First, he wrote a 29-part series for the Century Magazine, then a 1,000-page book that was published both in the United States and in every major European language, parts of which, of both writings, were smuggled into Russia. And then he undertook a nine-year lecture tour across the United States, lecturing to perhaps 800, on 800 different occasions, to as many as one million people. He lectured 26 times in Boston. And on the 26th event, the 26th lecture, there were 2,000 people in the audience. He was an absolutely mesmerizing speaker. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure he was, but he died in 1924. He obviously was no great fan of the czarist system. Was he sympathetic to Bolshevism? What was his opinion of the 1905 revolution and then the two revolutions in 1917? I think he, he did not have a strong reaction to the 1905 revolution because it did not result in what he was after, which was regime or governance change. The Russian revolution, however, he initially greeted the overthrow of Nicholas II and the Romanov Empire with elation, enthusiasm, because he thought that after 150 years of struggle on the part of, the, including the people he met in Russia, the political exiles, finally, democracy and freedom would have its day in Russia. And then within just a matter of months, 
he was sadly disabused that anything like that would happen. I mean, was he a, a Bolshevik with the Bolshevik Revolution? Was and he? That, a, he was. He was horrified by. It. Was he up? Because a lot of people were hopeful about the Bolsheviks. Most people didn't know much about them in 1917. Was he immediately hostile to Bolshevism and to Lenin? Yes, he was immediately hostile, and he understood right away that these were not liberal reformers, a reflection in many Americans' eyes of our own reformist tendency. Uh, but these were ruthless uh, autocrats at the very least, uh, who would govern without any popular involvement by the people. And what really horrified him, he would put it this way, he would have been horrified to know that while they themselves, the Bolsheviks, were in exile or conducting clandestine revolutionary activities before the Bolshevik Revolution, they were guarded into Siberia, Kennan's work, as their Bible, because he was describing the abuses of the Tsarist regime that they were dedicated to overthrowing. And I think it was a great disappointment to him because he only had a few years to live uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution, that he did not live to see some, yeah, kind, he, of storm, some kind of freedom in, in Russia. He passed the mantle, of course, it, symbolically at least, to his cousin, uh, George F. Kennan, who also was a great critic of the, of the, the Soviet system. Uh, what ties these two Kennans together? Of course, George F. Kennan was, uh, was the the champion, the pioneer of the idea of containment. Was there any containment in, in, in your George Kennan's thinking about Russia? Did he see it as a threat? No, no he was not that farsighted. He insisted, however, in his speeches towards the end of his life, that someday the Bolshevik regime would be overthrown. And he indirectly, had a hand in that because, as I said, the younger George Kennan later said in life that he tried to do everything his older, famous cousin did. And so in a certain sense, there might have been some cause and effect between... Yeah, it's ironic. He life. thought of his, his cousin as the famous one. Now we all know about George F. Kennan and not his... And, and one of the reasons is because George F. Kennan, his containment strategy was so successful and became famous and that to a great degree overshadowed and, and partly the similarity of the names, identity of the names, also may have played a role in the relative obscurity of my Yeah, it's an incredible story. I, I, you know, you, you couldn't make that kind of stuff up. Finally, um, Gregory, you also have a, a very interesting column in The Hill. You write about Gaza, Joe Biden, an interesting piece on Ukraine recently. Uh, what can your George Kennan tell us about the current situation in Russia and Ukraine and, and, and Putin? I assume that if he was to come back to life now, he would see Putin as not particularly different from the 19th century czar. I think he would see Putin the way Putin sees Putin, as an heir to Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and so on. I, I think the story, the Kennan story holds lessons for today and particularly as regards Putin Russia. It's been Russia, it's been said 
the time moves at a different pace in Russia than in the West, meaning more slowly. And what Kennan encountered, this submission by Russians to the exile journey and exile and the exile punishment, and the way the penal system was used by Tsarist Russia to punish dissent, you can see the parallels. Look at how Putin's Russia has used their penal system for purposes other than what presumably was intended. It became a recruiting tool for soldiers to feed into the war against Ukraine. And, and I think that that kind of Russian resolve and endurance and willingness to sacrifice is something that we, the West, underestimated at the outset of Russia's invasion, particularly when Ukraine achieved all those astonishing successes. And what we're seeing now is that centuries old, you can find other parallels, uh, resilience of Russia and the obedience to a single man's overwhelming messianic determination to crush another country. And going forward, we should never underestimate that resolve.